You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. We're going to look at Luke 8, 22 to 56 this morning. If this is your first time here, we're going straight through the gospel of Luke, chapter by chapter, and just really excited about what God's showing us here in his word uh, in the gospel of Luke. Uh, Certainly a time where we get to explore the life and the ministry of Jesus. And it's, it's an amazing opportunity uh, to, to stand up here and to talk about Jesus. It's my favorite topic. And it amazes me uh, how that uh, you can listen to messages, uh, certainly in, in the Gospels, and, and not hear about Jesus. But I think whenever we open God's Word, whether it be in Leviticus or in Luke or wherever we're at in the Bible, that we ought to be hearing about Jesus. He is the central theme of the Bible. And, and it's my favorite topic, and it just so happens that we get to talk about him every week, because wherever we're at in the Bible, we're going to get to Jesus. And if I don't get to Jesus, then I didn't do a very good job. And sometimes, when I'm done, I think, you know what? I didn't get to Jesus very well. That, that, was, that was a lot about uh, this particular topic, or, or this issue, or we talked a lot about your responsibility, but I didn't get to Jesus very well. And I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday, and I said, you know, there's really two criteria for good preaching. Aside from all the stylistic things, aside from a guy stumbling over himself, and a guy just absolutely just not being called to do what he's doing, there's really two criteria other than that. And one is, did you teach the text in such a way that the, when the author wrote it, that's what he intended to say? Using it as a launching pad to say something else. And secondly, did you get to Jesus? That's the bottom line. And that's what we want to do here, you guys, as we open God's word, is we want to see Jesus. It's fairly easy uh, when we're looking in the Gospels. But as you're reading through the word, no matter where you're at, You need to find Jesus because he's there. He's there on every page of the Bible. And he wants you to know him. He wants you to be intimately acquainted with him. And last week, we looked at the first 21 verses of chapter 8. And we looked at the importance of how we listen to God's word. In that section, we focused on Jesus' teaching. But now we're going to focus on Jesus' power. Jesus is going to touch the lives of four different individuals or groups of people in our text. And in each one of these touches, we learn a very powerful truth about Jesus. And so we're going to look at these four people or groups that Jesus touches. And then we're going to learn a truth about Jesus from each one of those scenarios. And so the first thing that we see is the disciples in the boat. And it's a familiar story to us. Verses 22 to 25. It says, Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy or in great danger. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, 
and they obey him. So there's a lot going on here, but the truth that we learn, I think overarching in this section is that Jesus is the master of the storm. Now, in Mark's gospel, we, we learn that Jesus was already in a boat when he preached the, the parable of the sower. He was already in a boat. He used the water as sort of a natural acoustic. So now Jesus says, look, guys, get in the boat. We're going to cross over to the other side. Now, there's something I want you to notice about that. Jesus gives them a promise. He doesn't say, hey, guys, we're going to get in a boat, and it may be, if we're lucky, that we get to the other side. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but let's, let's make a good effort at it. No, he says, let's get into the boat and cross over to the other side of the lake. So he gave them a promise. And God's given you many promises. God's given you the promise that he will provide for you. God's given you the promise that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. God's given you the promise that if you know him, if you've received Jesus Christ, that you need not fear death because there's an amazing life awaiting you after death. And so God's given us these promises, and now it's up to us whether or not we are going to believe these promises. And 2 Corinthians tells us that the promises of God are in Him, yes and amen, in Jesus. Jesus keeps His promises. Now, if you're like me, you've been lied to many times by by parents, by individuals. You've been sold a bill of goods in a lot of different areas. Maybe you're your mom and dad were divorced like my parents, and, and you had a dad that you didn't live with who was constantly telling you things that he never delivered on. If you can relate to that, then you're a lot like me. My dad would call me, and he would tell me how much he loves me. He would tell me all the things he's going to do. When you come this summer, I'm going to take you here, I'm going to take you there. And then he never did any of it. And so by the time I was 12 or so, I would pretty much just put the phone down and let him talk to the table. You can tell the table all these promises. Because I don't believe anything you say. But Jesus, Jesus isn't like that. When Jesus says, we're going to cross to the other side, he will deliver on that promise. And it's an amazing thing. But as they begin to go, Jesus falls asleep. So Jesus is out, which I've heard it said many times that this is because Jesus wanted to show them that he was kicked back. He wasn't worried about it. I think Luke is just showing us that Jesus is a man, that he's human. He was tired. He had just been healing people and preaching and ministering, and now he falls asleep. He's taken this opportunity to catch some Z's as they're crossing the lake. I don't know that there's a lot more to it than that. But as he's asleep and as they're sailing across the lake, a windstorm comes down upon the lake. And the Sea of Galilee, it's, it really is a lake, but what's called the Sea of Galilee, will have these tremendous storms because the sea is at about 680 feet below sea level. 680 feet below the Mediterranean. And then you have these mountains and hills all around it, particularly Mount Hermon, where the wind just whips down onto the lake. And so you have this cool, cold mountain air flowing down onto the lake where the air is warm below sea level, that air mixes and it creates an, a tremendous amount of turbulence. And so in a quick amount of time, you can have a raging storm. Now remember, many of Jesus' disciples were professional fishermen. So for them to be freaked out, it had to be quite a storm. They were used to the storms that were normal, that were everyday, that were common. This was something different. 
They were in jeopardy. They felt like they were going to lose their lives. And they lost sight of the promise that Jesus had given them. And so they begin to freak out. They wake Jesus up. They tell him we're going to die. Jesus just speaks a word just like he did when he created everything. He rebukes the wind and the waves and they cease and there was a calm. And I think there's a tremendous truth for us to know in that Jesus is the master of the storm. Because you know what? As you read this story and as you hear me talk about it, you're probably thinking to yourself, look, I'm not going to be out on a boat anytime soon. And if I am out on a boat, I'm probably not going to have the risk of losing my life. And so how is this relevant to me? And the relevance, I think, without getting real allegorical about things, is simply that we face storms of various kinds in our life. We face all kinds of turbulent circumstances. There are various winds and waves that crash into our lives. And many of us, many of you, are, are going through economic storms right now. Things that a year ago really weren't even an issue for you. And now they've become an issue. And now there's threat that you might lose your job. Or you've already lost a job. Or you're having to make major budget cuts. And you're having to rob Peter to pay Paul. And and you're just every month trying to figure out how am I going to pay these bills with the unemployment check. Or with the few little odd jobs that I can scrape together. And so there's storms financially that many of you are facing. Facing the the idea of losing your home. But the fact is, is that God has promised to provide for you. God's promised to keep you afloat. He hasn't promised to give you everything you want. He hasn't promised to give you a comfortable, posh lifestyle. But he's promised to provide for you. But like the disciples, when those storms come in, we freak out. And God, I'm going to sink. God, I'm going to die. Lord, my kids are going to starve to death. And God says, no, I'm going to provide for you. I'm the master of the storm. I'm going to take you through this as long as you keep your eyes on me. And God will say to us, where is your faith? Where's your trust in me? See, it's easy for us to think that we're trusting God when in reality we're trusting in in others. We're trusting in our employer. We're trusting in our bank account. We're trusting in our 401ks. And when all of that is gone, when all those things are stripped from us, then we really know if we're trusting in God or not. And there's this common saying, and maybe you've heard it, maybe you've said it before. I, I, I know I've heard it many times. That God will never give you more than you can handle. Have, have you guys heard that before? And, and people will go to the word, 1 Corinthians and, and they'll say, see, th- this is where it is. God will never give you more than you can handle. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But the f- problem with that, if you read that in its context, is it's talking about temptation. It's talking about that God will never tempt you in such a way that God will never bring and allow temptation into your life in such a way that you cannot escape it. And so people say, oh, I've just been so tempted I had to give in. That's wrong. You'll never be tempted beyond what you're able to escape. But that has nothing to do with trials and difficulties and hardships. And so for millennia, people have been saying, God will never give you more than you can handle. And that just is patently untrue. God will constantly give you more than you can handle. And so 
If that's your mindset, if that's your perspective, you need to change that because it's so damaging when you say that to someone and then they're in circumstances that are way beyond what they can handle. See, the disciples were in a situation that they couldn't handle. But what they needed to do was simply to trust in the Lord. They needed to understand that Jesus is the master of the storm, that nothing is too powerful for him because he's the creator of everything. Nothing takes him by surprise. Do you ever get the idea that this whole economic situation has just taken God by surprise? That's kind of the way Christians are presenting it. Like that God was not aware that he's paranoid. And there are just a barrage of emails that are being sent out to you. And people blogging about how the world is coming to an end. And Christians are afraid. We shouldn't be afraid. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so Jesus is the master of the storm. And so they finally get to the other side. The disciples are are now fearful, not in a way of like they want to run and hide, but they're awed and they're amazed at who Jesus is. Who can this be that he even commands the winds and the water and they obey him? And this is a great question. This is a question that Luke has been presenting throughout the gospel as he's writing to Theophilus, this unconverted Roman official. And Luke keeps bringing up this question. Who is Jesus? Theophilus, have you thought about that? Who is Jesus? And that question begs an answer. It it is being asked of you this morning. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he? Is he just sort of a figment of your imagination Is he a genie in a bottle? Is he a fairy tale? Who is Jesus to you? He's the master of the storm, first of all. So they get to the other side. They sail to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons. And so they're kind of out in the boonies. This guy is from the city, but he's been isolated. He's been ostracized because of his condition. And so... This man has demons, and he's had them for a long time, and he's wearing no clothes, so he's running around naked. He did not live in a house, but in the tomb. So not only is he homeless, but he chooses to live in a cemetery. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. And so these demons that have absolutely riddled this man's life understand who Jesus is. And they beg him. They don't command Jesus. They beg Jesus because they understand who he is. See, Luke just asked, who is Jesus? Now the demons recognize who he is. And so we can talk about Satan all we want and we can say how much of an enemy to God Satan is. But here's one thing about Satan that he has over a lot of us. He understands who Jesus is. And he respects him. And he obeys him. And these demons beg Jesus not to torment them. So I don't know what kind of a past these demons have had with Jesus, if he's gone Jack Bauer on them a time or two. But apparently they're afraid. (laughs) Do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Notice that Jesus is in full control of this situation. For it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. 
And so this guy is out of his mind. He's naked. He's running around with nowhere to live, hanging out with dead people. They're, they're binding him with chains, and he's just busting them. So he's got supernatural power. I don't know about the last time you were wrapped with a chain and just broke it. So this guy is crazy. Today he'd be in a mental institution. He, he would be institutionalized for sure. And Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said, Legion. Because many demons had entered him. Legion was the, the title for a regiment of a thousand Roman soldiers. And so th- this man was probably just saying what was familiar to him in the sense that he had many demons. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. And so the demons don't want to be cast into the bottomless pit, which will be their abode for eternity. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Now, it wasn't very common to have swine feeding in Israel, but this was a Gentile area, and, and it was probably so that they, these guys had been sort of pushed out of the Jewish areas and had been sort of ostracized into the boonies because swine were unclean. And the demon said, look, send us into the swine. And so Jesus permitted that. He sent the demons into the swine. And the demons went out of the man, entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. There's something I think is important for us to understand about the distinction between humans and animals. God has created humans in his image. Imago Dei. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God created us in his image. He didn't create animals in his image. Animals do not have the same rights and privileges that humans have. Now, that doesn't mean we should abuse animals or mistreat them. It doesn't mean that we can't love animals. But we should never elevate animals to the same place as humans. And this is clear here that Jesus saves this man by sending the demons into the pigs, causing the pigs to run to their death. And when those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And you can imagine they weren't really stoked about the fact that their business had just ran over the cliff. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. So here they are again. They're in awe of Jesus. And they also who had seen it told them by what means... He who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now, the truth that we learn in this section is that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Here's this guy. He's out of his mind. He's running around naked. He doesn't have a home. He has no friends. People don't know what to do with him anymore. They've been chaining him up, hoping to contain him, and he just rips the chains apart. And so they are just like happy that this guy is living out in the boonies. They're just happy to be done with the guy. And Jesus comes along, he rebukes the demons, he sends them out. Now the guy's sitting at Jesus' feet, he's clothed, which is a good thing. He's in his right mind. And they are amazed. They're absolutely astonished. 
And the thing is, you guys, is that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus can take a hopeless situation, a person who has no hope whatsoever. And we all know those kind of people. We say they're a lost cause. They're never going to change. Maybe someone who's just been on drugs their entire life. And it's just like they are never going to change. Never going to change. They might do well for a little while, but then they get right back into it. They've sacrificed their finances, their family, their future for drugs. And it's like they are never going to change. And we all know people like that who are just absolutely out of their mind. And yet Jesus can come and he can touch that person and he can bring them peace. He can heal their mind. And like never before in our country, in, a, in our culture, we are faced with mental issues. People who are out of their mind. And I'm not saying that there aren't real, legitimate mental issues. Absolutely true, there are. And that people don't need to be on medication. And that some people have mental uh, and chemical imbalances that need to be balanced out with medication. But I think we are an over-medicated society. And I think that lots of issues are spiritual issues. If this man lived today, no one would say he was demon-possessed. People would say he's a manic depressive. People would say he's, he's crazy. Get him on some lithium, get him on some kind of a, of a drug, and, and just basically get him so medicated that he can't even really think straight, and, and, and at least he won't harm anybody else. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for that. And that there isn't a place for the field of psychiatry and, and for those types of drugs. But I think we need to, to also give room for and give place for the spiritual and how that demons are still active today. Satan didn't pack up and go home. He's still actively trying to destroy people's lives. And Jesus wants to come and he wants to heal people. But we have to give him the opportunity to do it. I think we're so logical and we jump to such quick conclusions about things that often we don't give Jesus place to do his thing, to heal people. He just needs to be allowed and given the opportunity to touch lives and he can give people peace. He can set people straight. And he wants to do that for you. And maybe you're a Christian, maybe you know the Lord, but you haven't had a lot of peace lately. Maybe you kind of feel like this guy. You're just running around, just out of your mind, crazy, worried about things. You're, you're filled with rage and anger because of all the stress in your life. And you've isolated yourself from your friends, ostracized yourself from your family. Jesus wants to touch your life. He wants to come. He wants to set you straight. He wants to, to heal you, to clothe you in his righteousness. He wants to give you peace. Because see, we can have peace with God by virtue of our relationship with Him. We have peace with God. But just because you have peace with God doesn't mean that you have the peace of God. And You can have peace with God and then yet not be experiencing His peace at all. And He wants you to have both. He wants you to experience peace with Him, reconciliation. He wants that relationship to be reconciled. He wants to bridge that gap. And once that happens... He wants you to experience his ongoing peace that Philippians chapter 4 talks about. The peace of God that will rule your heart. And as I interact with people right now and as I talk to people and as I see what people are going through, I, I don't see a lot of peace. 
I see a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, paranoia. And you know what that does? When you allow that to dominate your life, it begins to mold and shape your decision making. Just like this guy. And pretty soon you're doing crazy stuff. And Jesus wants to come and he wants to be your prince of peace. He wants you to allow him to flood your life with peace that passes all understanding. And I love the end of this section, how this guy wants to go with Jesus and he he wants to, to hang out with him. And for good reason, who wouldn't want to? The guy was out of his mind and Jesus has healed him and given him peace, given him things he's never had before. And so he wants to continue just to be with Jesus and Jesus says, look, I want you to return to your own house. I want you to go back to your city and I want you to tell them what great things God has done for you. And we think about evangelism. Maybe even as I was talking this morning about going door to door and handing CDs or inviting someone to church and you're thinking, I don't do that. That's not me. I'm shy, I'm an introvert, I'm not one to to go and and talk to people. If they come to me, I'll talk to them. But I can't just go up to people. Well, here's the thing. That kind of evangelism doesn't always have to be obnoxious and condescending. Because basically what God is calling us to do is to go and tell people what great things he's done for us. That's it. Anybody can do that. I can handle that. I can go to somebody and I can tell them what great things God has done for me. That's real evangelism. That's evangelism that's effective. Giving people a bunch of theology, giving people your opinion, giving people a list of rules and regulations is not evangelism. Evangelism is telling people what Jesus has done for you. Make it very personal. Now, if you can't do that, then you have to ask yourself, do I really know Jesus? Have I actually encountered him? And if you have, then you have a story to tell. And that's all God wants you to do, is to go and tell your story. And so tomorrow, you're going to talk to people who don't know Jesus. You're going to see people at work. You're going to encounter people in your neighborhood. You're going to see somebody at the grocery store. You're going to talk to somebody on the phone who doesn't know Jesus. And so ask God to give you an opportunity, like he did with this man, to go and tell people the great things that he has done. You guys, that takes a huge load off of the burden of evangelism that we all seem to just sort of cower at. Oh, don't talk about that. I don't do that. I can't do that. I'm embarrassed. I don't know enough. Just go tell people the great things God's done for you. Tell them that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that he wants to give them something that they will never find anywhere else. And so it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Wherever Jesus goes, there's just a throng of people. He goes across the sea. He runs into this demon-possessed man. He ministers to him. He gets back in a boat. He goes across the sea, back to the other side. People are waiting for him there. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? And when all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? 
But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And so Jesus is encountered by a couple different people here, but we want to look at the woman first, the woman with the flow of blood. As Jesus is making his way to minister to Jairus' daughter, he's encountered by this woman who, much like the demon-possessed man, was in a very hopeless, desperate situation. Again, if you would have said to this lady, hey, God will never give you more than you can handle. Really? Well, I've been bleeding for like 12 years. I've spent my entire life, my savings, everything I have, Mark tells us, on physicians. In fact, history tells us there were no less than 11 cures for this particular disease, none of which really worked. And so this woman was desperate, she was hopeless, and she came to that place where her only option was Jesus. You see, that's where God wants you to be. That's why God will consistently bring things into your life that you can't handle, like physical issues, mental issues, like the man in the previous section. God will will bring financial struggles. God will bring storms of many kinds. Not because he likes to torment you, not because he thinks it's a game and he's having fun with it, No, but by his providence, he knows that this will be the thing that will drive you to him. See, right now, many people are finally waking up to the fact that they need God because their bank account's dried up, they don't have any work, their retirement's gone, the equity in their house has disappeared, and so finally they're realizing, you know what? I can't rely on myself. I can't rely on my ability to work. I can't rely on my skills and my intelligence and my experience. And even many Christians have been doing that for a long time now. Giving lip service to God, saying that that I believe in God and I trust in God and I love God and going to church. But in reality, there's no real need to make those statements true. You haven't been tested to the point where you are desperate and hopeless and without any other alternative but Jesus. And then what happens when you're faced with that scenario? What do you do? Do you continue to try to make it happen on your own? Do you continue to push into prod, getting desperate, and then making really terrible decisions? If that's what you're doing, then you're continuing to prove that you are not trusting God, that you are not submitted to God, that you don't believe in His promises. What you believe in is your own strength, your own ability. And the truth we learn here is that Jesus is the source of hope. Jesus is our only source of hope. He brings things into our life that we can't handle so that we will run to him. And this woman who was unclean, Leviticus 15 would tell us that this woman would not be able to participate in religious activities in Israel. This woman would not have been able to have a job. She would have been completely ostracized from Her family and her friends, her husband would have divorced her. She spent her whole livelihood on doctors that have completely let her down. She's without options. She's really not even supposed to be in this crowd right now. 
because she's unclean. And maybe you can relate to this woman. Maybe her story resonates with you. You can put yourself in her shoes and you, you feel a lot like this woman, completely without any hope at all. And she says, you know what? I've got one last chance, one last opportunity. And you know what? They might throw me out. They might even kill me for this, but I'm going to go for it. I'm going to run to Jesus. I'm going to grab a hold of him. I'm going to touch him because I want him to touch me. And that's what she does. She wasn't supposed to do that. She was probably told not to do that. And she pushes and pries her way to Jesus and finally gets to him. And she touches his garment. And Jesus recognizes that power had flowed out of him, flowed out of him to this woman. And he asks, who's touched me? Not who's rubbed up against me. Not who have I inadvertently encountered here but someone has touched me by faith and see there's a difference there's a big difference in encountering jesus just because you go to church and sort of rubbing elbows with god a little bit and and coming in contact with him by singing a few songs by carrying a bible around but jesus is asking this morning who touched me who touched me Who touched me by faith? Who came to me so desperate, so hopeless, so without any alternative that there was something different about that? There was something very precious about that. There was something very unique about that. That's what he wants. You guys, Jesus doesn't want to be on your list of options. Jesus wants to be your only option. Jesus wants to be your only source of hope. And so the things that you're going through right now, know that by God's sovereignty and his providence, he's allowing them to come into your life because he wants to bring you to a place where you recognize that he's all you've got. And so he'll have to take things from you. If you're relying on your money, he's going to take that from you. If you're relying on particular relationships, then he's going to show you that that person cannot be your all in all. If you're relying upon anything other than Jesus, he is going to make it very clear to you that he is your only source of hope. And so rather than fighting against it, rather than being afraid, rather than being paranoid and continuing to push against God, submit to it and ask for wisdom as to what he's trying to teach you. When was the last time you truly touched Jesus? That you came to him completely without option and you grabbed a hold of him and you refused to let go when was the last time so jesus heals this woman tells her be of good cheer your faith has made you well go in peace imagine the the enjoyment imagine the overwhelming desire to worship if you've ever had an illness or a sickness for any length of time and and no doctor could figure out what it is and then finally a doctor understands and he takes all the symptoms and he puts together an accurate prognosis. There's just a rejoicing in that. Or if you've taken your car to like eight mechanics and nobody can figure it out and finally one does, it's like you want to give the guy an award. It's like finally. And that's the way this woman would have felt about Jesus. For 12 years, finally she's encountered someone who can actually help her. Jesus is our only source of hope. And while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher. This seems really insensitive to me. This was a different culture. But basically he just lays it out. Hey, she's dead, don't even worry about it, don't even mess with it anymore. But when Jesus heard it, he answered saying, 
Do not be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. So again, Jairus went from a fairly hopeless situation to a completely hopeless situation. And I think you have to kind of put yourself in Jairus' shoes. He's walking with Jesus. He's like, come on, let's go. We've got to get to the house. My daughter, she's 12 years old. She means everything to me. She's dying. Hurry, please come and touch her. And Jesus stops. Hey, um, somebody's touching me here. Do you know who it is, Peter? What's going on? And you can just imagine Jairus over here like, hey, who cares? What are you doing? Let's go. Let's hurry. But now he's seen this woman who was absolutely without hope. He's seen her touched and healed. And that begins to register in Jairus's mind. And it's no longer, hey, let's get there because if you don't get there before she dies, this is going to be hopeless. Now he's realizing, you know what? This guy's got a power far beyond anything that I could ever imagine. Something interesting about this is that Jairus, it tells us in verse 41, was a ruler of the synagogue. That means he was part of the religious elite, the religious mafia that was wanting to kill Jesus. You remember back in chapter 6 after Jesus healed the guy on the Sabbath and after he, he did all those things on the Sabbath just to really tick off the religious leaders that they plotted and planned how to kill him? Jairus was a part of that. It doesn't tell us that he hated Jesus or that he was necessarily part of the plotting and planning, but he was part of that whole religious leadership. And you know what my tendency would have been if I was Jairus is to say, I can't go to Jesus. He's not going to listen to me. He, he knows what group I'm a part of. He knows the things I've done. He doesn't want to help my daughter. I'm his enemy. But Jairus understood something. Maybe something that you don't understand this morning. Because maybe you've come here this morning thinking, I'm beyond God's help. God isn't going to want to forgive me. I've done the same thing over and over and over again. He doesn't want to have anything to do with me. I'm beyond his grace and his love. Jairus understood that Jesus and his love are limitless and boundless. He doesn't hold things against us. He's not like us. See, if I was Jesus and Jairus came to me, I would be saying, oh, now you need me. A couple days ago, you wanted to kill me. A couple days ago, you and your buddies, the mafia, you wanted to run me out of town. Now you need me. Now isn't this convenient? That's not what Jesus does, and it's not what he does to you either. Jesus isn't holding your past over your head. Jesus isn't saying to you, oh, isn't this convenient? Now you've got troubles, and so now you're coming to me. I haven't heard from you in a month. I haven't heard from you in years when everything was going well. Now you call out to me? See, that's what we would do. That's the attitude we would have. But don't put our sin upon God because he doesn't do that. He just accepts us with open arms like he did Jairus. And now the news comes that not only is his daughter sick, but she's dead. And so you can imagine that Jairus' heart would have sank. And I'm sure there was a little bit in him that wanted to say, if we would have just hurried, this wouldn't have happened. But then I think he's reminded of who Jesus is and what he just saw right before him. And Jesus says, look, don't be afraid. Don't listen to these people. Just believe. Just trust. And that's a message that Jesus is sending to you guys this morning. You guys, there's a lot of opinions There's a lot of stuff out there. You just turn on the news. You just talk to somebody. Everybody's an expert about the economy, about the state of affairs in America, about the fact that Barack Obama is the Antichrist. He's going to lead us into the Great Tribulation. I mean, all these different opinions, all these different things. And people are afraid. 
people are writing articles and sending them out to everybody they know about how the world's coming to an end, that New York City's going to burn to the ground. You guys, that doesn't do any of us any good. It doesn't do any of us any good to, to focus on our circumstances. You know what? That may be true. All those things could be true. But the fact is, is that that's not the kind of thing we need to be meditating on. We need to be meditating on the promises of God. We need to be meditating on the love of God, on the gospel. Don't be afraid. Only believe. And she will be made well. Ultimately, your circumstances will be made well. Maybe not in time, but certainly in eternity. God has a great plan. He's in control. Do not be afraid. And when he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. So the mourners are already there. And this was a big deal in the Jewish culture. There would have been the entire family and the the community would have been there weeping and wailing and carrying on. This would have been a very dramatic scene. And Jesus says, look, do not weep. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they ridiculed Jesus, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, little girl, arise. Because there's lots of mockers. There's lots of people who who will scorn God's word. And you need to put them out. doesn't mean you need to put them out of your life. It just means you need to put them out of who you're listening to and who you're meditating upon and who you're listening to to draw conclusions by and make decisions with their information. You need to put that out because there's lots of negativity. There's lots of things that are going to come against the word of God. But we need to listen to Jesus. He took this little girl, he lifted her up. Her spirit returned and she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And so in this fourth encounter, this fourth touch, we learn that Jesus is the giver of life. He's the giver of life. He gave you life initially. He breathed life into you. He's your creator. But sin destroyed you. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And sin has robbed you of all that God had given you. And it created death in you and separation. And Jesus wants to restore that. He wants to restore you to the place that he ultimately created you for. And I think people have a lot of questions about God and about Christianity and about the Bible today. And I think one of the questions that people have is, if God is so loving, then why do all these terrible things happen in this world? Why is there death and destruction and murder and child abuse and poverty and war? Why do all these things exist? And you guys, it's a very simple answer. A very simple answer for us to simply say, God didn't create that stuff. God didn't intend for man to live in that kind of an environment. Go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That's how God created us to live. But it didn't take long for man to screw it all up. Now that didn't take God by surprise. It didn't knock him back. He knew it was coming and he already had a plan to bring restoration. God wants to restore you. And ultimately, God is going to restore us to that place of perfection, to that place where there is no more death, there is no more destruction, there is no more heartache, there is no more pain, there is no more loss. Ultimately, he'll restore us to that because he's the giver of life. And he gives it to all freely, without condition. And he wants to give it to you today. He wants to give you new life. If you don't know him, he wants to do that 
for you for the very first time. He wants to give you life. He wants to give you hope. If you do know him, he wants to do that for you once again. He wants to renew that in you. He, he wants to give you a sense of peace and of purpose. He, he wants you to understand that he has a great plan for you. He wants to give you life. Will you accept that this morning? Or are you going to continue to listen to all of the negativity, to all of the scoffers and the mockers of God's word? It's your choice. Just like last week when we looked at the parable of the sower and we talked about the key is understanding that it isn't just hearing God's word, but it's actually allowing it to go down into your heart and to produce established root system in your life so that fruit can abound. It's what kind of a listener are you to God's word? And what kind of a listener are you this morning? Jesus wants to come and he wants to be the master of your storm. No matter what you're going through, he wants to show you he's in control. He wants to be your prince of peace. He wants to give you peace in the midst of all of your difficulties. Jesus wants to be your only source of hope So that you'll quit saying that God will never give me more than I can handle and then wonder why he's consistently doing that. He wants you to realize this morning he is giving you more than you can handle so that you'll come to the end of yourself and realize he's your only source of hope. And he wants you to know that he's the giver of life, that he wants to touch you and to give you new life this morning, a new heart, a new purpose, a new perspective. That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to absolutely revolutionize your life. Whether you know him or not, he wants you to touch him like that woman did. Who touched me? When was the last time you truly touched Jesus and allowed him to truly touch you? I I hope that, that you do that this morning before you leave, that you allow Jesus to make himself real to you. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. God, we thank you that you do want to be our all in all, that you'll never leave us, nor forsake us, that God, you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And God, I pray for each one of these truths that we learned about you this morning, that God, maybe one of them really stuck out to us and really ministered to us. God, I pray that you would do that this morning, that you would be that particular powerful force in our life. Jesus, we surrender ourselves to you. Jesus, we want all that you have for us. Jesus, we realize that what you're calling us to do is to lay it all down, to surrender to you, and to allow you to work in us. God, we're tired of doing it on our own. God, we're tired of trying to make it happen. Lord, may you be the one. Jesus, we give up. We realize that you're our only source of hope, that you're our only alternative. God, give us new life this morning. Give us a new perspective, a new purpose. God, do that work in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.